Good morning. Um, I want to encourage you to keep the death of Christ in the birth of Christ. So it, it's a joy to be able to come here and speak about the advent of, of Christ, his arrival upon the scene of the world to save sinners. And every part of the story displays the uh, God's grace and the wonder of his love. And this morning I want to examine just a few of the threads of the story that display his humanity. Uh, this one, this high and lifted up one who descended into the gritty, nitty-gritty of human life and coming very near to us, coming right next to us, uh, Emmanuel, God with us. So Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18 read like this, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Father, we come today here to worship you, to submit to you, to bow down before you and exalt you and praise you and glory in you. And Father, you have drawn very near to us in your Son. Help us to see it and to appreciate it and to uh, praise you even more today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In other scripture... Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. Now it happened while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, there's something that is special about holding a newborn, uh, looking into its face, uh, we, we have some awareness that he, we're holding this little child that is nothing less than a miracle of God. A new eternal soul created in the image of God, possessing great potential. And who knows what that child will end up doing in life, for good or for ill. And that's sobering, isn't it? But be that as it may, new life must continue to be brought into the world for mankind to flourish. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. So our Lord and Savior entered the world through a conception, a pregnancy, and a birth. In the context of a betrothal and a marriage, he began as a helpless infant in the arms of a young man and woman just like you and I. And the Jews thought that the Messiah ought to appear on the scene like a mighty king in great majesty and just conquer their enemies. But no, in the wisdom of the Father, the Son came as a helpless infant. If Mary didn't nurse him, he would die. There was no formula. If Joseph didn't provide for him, he would die. If Joseph didn't act to protect him from certain political authorities, he would be killed. 
So our Lord and Savior lived a real life among the common people, needing food, protection, shelter, and clothing provided by real parents in a very hostile political environment. The humanity of Emmanuel, God with us. Remember, Joseph was preparing to leave father and mother to be joined to Mary as his wife when God interrupted their plans with his plans. Uh, remember, before they were married, an angel appeared to Mary and told her that she would bear a son and she would call his name Jesus. And understandably, she was unsure about how this would happen because she was a virgin. And the angel told her that she would conceive by the action of the Holy Spirit a miracle of God. And some six months later, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he understandably decided to end their betrothal. But because he was a just man, a righteous man, he did not want to disgrace her publicly, and so he decided to do it secretly. But an angel came to him as well, encouraging him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, because the son conceived in her womb was of the Holy Spirit, who would save his people from their sins. And so he married her and did not have sexual relations with her until after the baby was born, as we're told in Matthew 1.25. Think about that. So in, in exercising self-control, Joseph performed his necessary part, along with Mary, in fulfilling the scripture which said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And in doing this, Joseph didn't get sick. He didn't die. He wasn't even traumatized by waiting for the right time. So imagine those two arriving in Bethlehem, having traveled some 90 miles, likely on foot, Mary perhaps on a donkey, and she's in the final days of her pregnancy, and she knows that, and because she knows it, Joseph knows it as well, and no doubt he was just a little anxious as they had to travel that distance. And uh, that probably uh, increased when he found, as they arrived, that the inn was full and they had to shelter in a stable. And not long after they arrived, labor started, real labor. And, but it didn't, don't think for a moment here that Joseph knew how to help her or that she could just smilingly uh, handle this on her own. No, it's a real labor and it's her first child. So unlike the movies, it would be more realistic to think that a call for help went out and the local midwife and her helpers came a-running. Women helping women as they always have done since the beginning, and a baby is born with their help. And it cannot be hidden from the midwife and her helpers that Mary's a virgin. And after Mary nursed the baby, and he was cleaned and wrapped tightly up for his comfort, imagine her holding him and Joseph looking over her shoulder like all couples do, to look into the face of that little child. And they have some idea of who he is and what he will do. But how could they grasp that they were looking into the face of the one who is the 
image of the invisible God, the firstborn of the creation, through whom all things were created, through whom all things hold together, the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, through whom all things would be reconciled. That one lying there in Mary's arms. And so, for what they knew, it was by faith. It was by their believing trust in the word of God and their obedience to that word that a a virgin gave birth to a child whose very purpose was to be slain for sinners. They were holding their own Savior in their arms. They were holding Emmanuel, God with us, God very near to us, who as Hebrews tells us, can and does sympathize with our weaknesses, who was tempted just like we are, but without sin, and that should give us the greatest hope and comfort. We have every reason to come boldly to him. In fact, his arms are wide open to us to give us help and grace in every time of our need. And think of Mary... A few months later, looking into the eyes of this little baby boy, she nursed him. um, And he, uh, looking up at her and pausing as he, to smile at her like babies do. And, uh, And her musing to herself over all that had happened and much that was yet to happen, as it tells us in Luke 2, verse 51. Emmanuel, God with us, made like his brethren in all things. So let's turn to Psalm 139. The first 12 verses of Psalm 139 tell us that our creator has an intimate knowledge of us. He sees our actions, he hears our words, and knows them before we can even get them out of our mouth. And he knows and examines and searches out the motives and intentions of our hearts. And there is nowhere to hide. There's no way to hide from him. He knows us exhaustively and comprehensively in a way that's overwhelming and maybe even frightening. And that's why prominent atheists like Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens hate and hated God. They didn't like that he was looking at them in this way. But God's gaze is only frightening because we have so much sin to hide. But for redeemed sinners who've been brought to repentance and faith, the fact that God is looking at us in this way means that he is thinking of us with gospel grace. And we can say, along with David in verse 17 of Psalm 139, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. Now, in our secular Christmas tradition, Santa Claus is also said to have eyes that look into every home all over the globe, watching to see if we're naughty or nice. Right, but his gaze is not nearly so threatening since he can only see what we do. But we are dealing in the truth, not in myths and fables. There is a real condemnation lying upon sinners. 
with consequences more than just coal left at their door. And the coming of the Messiah to our town and into our home and maybe down our chimney is accompanied by the deep soberness of confession as well as the inexpressible joy of salvation. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 16. So verse 13 through 17 of Psalm 139 read like this. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me, or you knit me together, or you wove me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. So this is a fascinating glimpse into how the, the all-seeing God participates in the formation of the minutest parts of our bodies in our mother's womb from the moment of conception. And the words used here of knitting together or weaving or covering are, are a very graphic word picture that is actually scientifically correct. We are woven together, our muscle structure. And think of this. God himself is at work this, this very moment in the wombs of every pregnant woman all over the globe right now. He is keenly interested in new life. He desires to see those babies born. And Psalm 139 not only tells us that our bodies were fashioned by him, it goes on to say that our days were fashioned by him as well. And they were written down in his book before those days had ever come to pass. Now, we might balk at the idea that God would fence us into a purpose in life that we had no part in choosing. But as it is written here in Psalm 139 and in many other passages, our days were formed for us. And they were written down in his book before they happened. And that means that every birth and every death has purpose and meaning. And every miscarriage, every disability, every deformity has purpose and meaning. And you know, this is also true of the Lord Jesus Christ. The human body of God the Son was formed and knit together and covered over in Mary's womb under the watchful eye and the skillful hand of his Father. At a particular moment in time in a way that we just don't comprehend, a miraculous conception took place in Mary's womb, and a little human body began to form. First one cell, and then two cells, and then four, and then 16 cells, and so on. And at some point, some cells began to specialize and form the various members of that little body, and other cells went to form the, the apparatus for sustaining and then birthing that little baby boy. And 
as things went, the hands and the feet that were to be nailed to the cross, the, the back that was to be torn to shreds under a Roman uh, whip, the head upon which a crown of thorns was to be forced, and about 21 days after concep conception, beginning at a beat of 110 beats a minute, the still developing heart that was to be pierced by a Roman spear were formed and forming in Mary's womb under the gaze of the Father. And as it is written in Psalm 139, each one of the days of his life had also already been fashioned for him and they were written down in his father's book as well. Even that particular day when he would be crucified on a Roman cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem at the time of the Passover in about the year 30 AD. And this is what's expressed in Revelation 13 verse 8 which tells us that Christ was the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. And this is what the gathered church proclaimed in Acts 4 when they confessed that the events of the death of Jesus Christ had happened just as the hand and plan of God had determined would happen beforehand. Made like his brethren in all things. And so like us, this baby, this special boy, grew up toward manhood. And at some point in time, he came to an understanding of who he was. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, read like this. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. You have given me an open ear. Other translations say, My ears you have opened. The idea here is of a person gaining increased ability to, under, to hear and therefore understand what they hadn't been able to understand before. What do these verses mean? Well, Psalm 40 was written by David, and he's praising and thanking God for rescuing him, and he's asking God to continue to rescue him from enemies he still faced, even his own sin. And David has been given an understanding somehow that animal sacrifices and offerings did not remove his sin. And so here in the middle of this psalm are these three verses that just stand out from all the others. So is David speaking of himself here as the one who was written about in the book who has come to do God's will? No, he's not talking about himself. God has given David a vision and he's watching a gospel truth unfold before his eyes. He's watching the son of the God the Son address God the Father about the animal sacrifices. Now, how do I know that? How can I say that? Well, Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 7 tells us this. Listen to the first four verses of Hebrews 10. For the law since it has only a sh is only a shadow of the good things to come, 
and not the very form of those things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Impossible. So notice, the author of Hebrews is explaining verse 6 of, of Psalm 40. He's telling us why it is that God did not delight in animal sacrifices and offerings. And the reason is, is that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's why God still doesn't delight in animal sacrifices and offerings. And maybe you're like me, this naturally seems to lead to this question, why, God, why in the world did you command your people to make those sacrifices if they could not take away sin and you don't delight in them? What's up with that, God? Well, the answer to that is that the sacrifices were not for God's sake. They were to remind the people, year after year, after decade, after century, that every time they came to the temple to offer them, that they were sinners. That might seem somewhat depressing, but only if we fail to see that the sacrifices were a visible proclamation of God's ancient promise to send the Messiah, who would one day deliver his people from their sins and their lawless deeds. And then in verses 5 through 7 of Hebrews 10, the author quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, as God's solution to the problem of sin. In verse 5 he writes, Therefore, or because of the ineffectiveness of the animal sacrifices, when he, Christ, came into the world, he said... We'll pause right there for a moment. Here we find out who's speaking those words in Psalm 40. In David's vision. The author of Hebrews tells us that when Christ came into the world, he said something. He said something. And here's what he said. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Christ said those words. But who is he talking to? Well, who else could it be other than his Father? Psalm 40, verse, verses 6 to 8, is the Son speaking to the Father, acknowledging the utter inadequacy of the animal sacrifices and acknowledging that his body, formed in Mary's womb, had been specifically fashioned for one single purpose, to be put to death on a particular day in a particular way as the only adequate and acceptable sacrifice that could actually take away all sin for all time. And the Greek grammar tells us that Christ did, did not say this just one time. This is an ongoing 
thing, the subject of his offering of his body for sin was this continual conversation, a continual subject between him and his father until it was accomplished. Check out Luke 9, verse 31. Okay, I see, but when did he say those words? We don't, it's not ever recorded in the Gospels. Fair enough, but here's a clue. From a baby, Jesus grows up to a toddler and to a child, and now he's moving on toward puberty. And in human experience, he could not have been aware of who he was as an infant. And we're given no clue that as a two-year-old he was spouting scripture, or that at six years old he was uprooting trees and throwing them into the sea. In fact, we're told that the first of the miracles that revealed who he was was at a wedding when he was 30 years of age. And, as Psalm 40 says, there was a day when the ears of Jesus were opened and he came to the full understanding of who he was and what God's purpose was for him. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 6, also refer to this same event. The Lord God awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And so I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now, there's a point in time when a boy starts growing into a man, usually at about the age of 12 or 13. And he, he begins to put away childish play, and he wants to uh, do real things. So remember, at age 12, Jesus went up with his parents to the yearly feast of the Passover to Jerusalem. And when it was time to go home, he remained behind. Now this story is not just a random thing that was placed as a memory in Luke's gospel. No, this is, this is there for a very good reason, and it gives us a glimpse into the thoughts and understanding at age 12, just very close and up real. <laughs> up close and very real, excuse me. So, remember his parents found him in the temple after three days of searching for him, and Mary rebuked him. Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have searched for you anxiously. Now, have you ever seen a mother suddenly realize that one of her children is lost? Anxious, sure, but more like frantic. And now it's been three days. And the 12-year-old Jesus responds to Mary, Why did you seek me? Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? So do you hear the echo of Psalm 40? in his words. Look, Father, I've come, just like it's written in the scroll of the book of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, Father, your law is written in my heart. And Mother, didn't you know that? I must be here. I have a job to do. 
And what was his father's business that took place in his father's house, in the temple? Well, he had just seen lambs slaughtered for the Passover feast. Lambs whose blood was on the the doorpost and and the lintel to save those inside the house. I think it's safe to say that the ears of that 12-year-old had been opened, at least to the extent that he saw the purpose of his life laid out in front of him, and he wanted to get on with it. Today, right now, for the joy that was set before him, he was prepared to endure the cross and despise the shame of the cross. He was in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In other words, they were astonished and they were bewildered by what they were hearing. He not only answered their questions, but he asked them hard questions and then answered those questions with truths they had never understood before. Who is this 12-year-old? So there's a fire in the belly of this this 12-year-old boy. But he was only 12. And we see that in his decision to stay behind. It wasn't time for him to go and do. He wasn't ready. And so as Luke 2 goes on to say, he went home and was subject to his parents, and he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then when he was 30 years old, he was ready. He was wise and mature. And it was time for him to stand up and to get on with his job. And his heavenly father released him to pursue his life's purpose. And early in the fourth year, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he led his disciples right to the cross to finish the business, his father's business which was nothing less than the forgiveness of sin and the removal of all that stood between God and the sin of his people. He embraced the full depth of what he had come to do, and he faced with courage the cup of suffering that his father had given him to drink down, and he drank it all to the last drop. You see, the man, Christ Jesus, was not a coward. He was very aware of the rigors and the torments that he faced, that lay ahead of him, but he walked toward the cross with perseverance and manly courage, and he acted like a man all the way to the end. That's the man, Christ Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. In your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me. Now, you older women especially know that you never stop being a mother, right? Never. And right here, we again find Mary, and she's standing with the Apostle John at the foot of the cross, seeing her grown son naked, his body shredded and covered with blood and with urine and excrement. Yes. And she sees him struggling in agony and hears some of his last words croaked out of his parched throat. And isn't this what Simeon had in mind when he told her the day that she and Joseph brought the baby to the temple? He said, a sword 
will pierce through your own soul also. Mm. So, so can you imagine the, the pain and the shock in her mother's heart? This is the real-life experience of this woman whom the father chose and used to bring his son into the world. So her suffering and pain and grief is deep and real, and it's a part of human life meeting the advent of the Christ. And then just three days later, on that Sunday evening, she is gathered with the 11 apostles and the others in the upper room, and the resurrected, glorified Christ appears in their midst. And he says to them, some of the things he says to them are this, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Even the Psalms, that would include Psalm 40, but also Psalm 2 and 8 and 15 and 22 and 110 and Psalm 118, just to name a few of them. And just speaking of Psalm 22, if you were a discerning Jew on that day and you were standing there at the foot of the cross or near enough, and you heard what, what, the, what the people around were mocking Jesus with, quoting basically what's in Psalm 22, and you observed what the soldiers were doing with his clothes, which is also mentioned in detail in Psalm 22, and then you heard him start to say the beginning verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were discerning, you could not have escaped the fact to, to know that you are watching prophecy being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. Amazing. Back to the upper room. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So if it was necessary for the Christ to suffer in this way, if that was what was written in his father's book for him, then Mary could not have escaped the pain of seeing her firstborn son suffer that death because it was written in God's book for her as well. And so in a very real way, Mary experienced what it really means that God works all things for the good. Even those hard, difficult, painful, heart-rending experience. But she was there, and her understanding was opened as well to comprehend the scriptures. And in that understanding, like the others, she tasted of the wonderful, marvelous goodness of God in the finished work of Christ, which no doubt then made that moment at the foot of the cross very meaningful for her. <clears throat> now, as he told those gathered that evening, in his death, our Savior actually and literally fulfilled every single Old Testament animal sacrifice. They were done. For instance, he was the real Passover lamb. He was the real scapegoat. He was the real sin offering offered on the Day of Atonement. And he was the real high priest. But he was sinless and pure, and he didn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself. Therefore, he had the right and the authority 
to enter into the real holy place, right into the presence of the Father, to offer his own life's blood in payment for the sins of his people. And that payment was accepted, and his people were forgiven, and God's wrath against them was appeased, justice was served, and their sins were blotted out forever to be remembered no more. He was the propitiation. So our Savior achieved something. He accomplished something real and tangible in his death. Hebrews 1 verse 3. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He purged our sins. He accomplished and and completed the cleansing of his people from all of their sins, past, present, and future, all of them. In other words, he justified his people, meaning that he set them free from condemnation. And not a one of them could have achieved this on their own or could have even helped him in any way. He did this by himself and all by himself. Because his people were now justified, he was raised up in resurrection life. And when he ascended into heaven, the Father declared him to be his son by virtue of the resurrection. And he was declared to be high priest forever by decree, ever living now to intercede for his people, even now today. And he was invited by his Father to come and sit at his right hand, and he was given all authority over heaven and earth. In other words... His death unleashed all the gospel promises of God in the new covenant, all of them. And grace, like a mighty flood, just flowed out, and it sank down into the lowest places, into every crack and crevice, into the deepest, darkest corners of the hearts of men and women, bringing repentance and faith, forgiveness and cleansing, restoration and new life, and real eternal hope. And that is why each one of us is here today. God's grace sank right down and brought us here today. What, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who in the world can be against us? I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, who is Emmanuel, God with us, very near us. In fact, maybe we could say he has put us in him that close. So just in closing... A very short encouragement <clears throat> because of all of this and more, I'm sure. I want to encourage you, if you don't already do this, beginning this Christmas, to take care not to separate the wonder of the little baby lying in the manger away from the grown man who suffered alone and forsaken for sinners. See his birth in the light of his death and be mightily encouraged. So if Jesus is the reason for the season, then it surely stands to reason that we ought to give him a significant place in our celebrations 
So along with whatever else you do and the joy that you share, block out a significant amount of time on that day to acknowledge him, to worship him, and to praise him. Gather your family and friends together and bow down and thank the Lord for sending the Son and then sending the Holy Spirit to apply the finished work of the Son. Sing the songs of the faith. Read the stories in Matthew and Luke and give Christ the place he deserves on that day and bring deep, satisfying meaning to that day and to your gathering. And then make this a family tradition and hand it down from generation to generation and never give it up. Rejoice in the advent of Christ, but keep his death firmly embedded in his birth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you sent your son for sinners, for those who were your enemies, for those who had no strength or even desire to repent and believe. But Father, you have, you have done a wondrous work for us and so we thank you in the name of your, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.